Welcome to Demand Does the Six Questions, where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demand, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demodcast. Now, this week is a special week because for the first time, we have a return guest. My next guest got married at a Renaissance festival once suggested that a national teacher's holiday should include discounts and cookies and is back to talk about her upcoming novella, A Theft Most Foul, from Mocha Memoirs Press. Give it up for Nicole Kurtz. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming um, back. Oh, I had so much fun the first time. I really wanted to do it again. Yay! That's <laughs> awesome! I always wonder if the guests have as much fun as I do. It's it's nice to know that at least one of them did. I totally did. <laughs> awesome! So, okay, first things first before we get into the next six questions. What have you been up to since since I last talked to you? I was laid off from my full-time job, so I've been building up my freelance editing business and writing. Just, I have a lot more time to write, uh, a lot more time to work on the launch for A Theft Most Foul, and looking forward to what you know my publishing company, Mocha Memoirs, is going to be doing in 2021. So just basically, I've had loads of extra time to kind of settle into this new, this new lifestyle of not having a traditional nine-to-six job. And, and working on that. So that's what I've been doing. And then, of course, there was like the holidays in between that. So I've been eating like crazy. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Last time, I forgot to ask. You're going to have to send me the picture of your UT, University of Tennessee, for those who do not remember from the last episode, your mouse pad. <laughs> I will. It's really funny because it's being replaced by a new mouse pad. It's actually not being replaced. It's just being like relocated to a different office. But yeah, I'll definitely take a picture of it to send it to you. <laughs> and everybody on Twitter is going to see it. So just, just let you know. <laughs> it's okay. Cause it's pretty worn out. It's like coffee stains and <laughs> but I'll send it. Are you just like a- my team, right? Just like my Tennessee football team. They're kind of wore out and worn down. Just like my mouse pad. <laughs> So, Nicole Kurtz, editor, publisher, author, leader of Mocha Memoirs Press, are you ready for another six questions? Yes, I am. Question number one. If you had unlimited funds, what would you create? Unlimited funds? Unlimited. I could do whatever. Oh my goodness. So it's like having unlimited uh, wishes. I would give money to all Title One schools and I would like funnel money, not just money, but I would also like increase teacher pay so that we have qualified and experienced teachers that actually work in Title One districts and want to be there and are paid adequately. That's what I would do. I would pay teachers. I would elevate schools because schools 
teaching teaches teachers teach every other profession. So like kids learn to read from teachers, kids learn to write from teachers, uh, generally speaking, if they're not being homeschooled. But there's so much that teachers do for kids that grow up to be doctors, that grow up to be just a person that's, a, you know, an administrator or a mail carrier. Like everyone goes through public school or goes through schooling of some sort. Right. But the vast majority of Americans go through public school. And so I would like tear down these buildings. You should see some of the conditions that school buildings are in. Like I would tear down these buildings so that kids have a safe, adequate, technologically advanced area to learn and explore. I would, it's ridiculous and it's actually criminal just how underfunded public education is in America. If you look at the federal budget and how much is spent on military and defense versus how much they put on actually public education, it's actually, it's actually ridiculous that these are the centers where we grow our populace. <laughs> that it's going to grow up and like run our country, right? Run our businesses. And you don't, and you don't think it's important enough to provide adequate education for all kids. My whole thing is the I've worked in a lot of schools and they're really old. Like they're built in the fifties, they're built in the forties and they have asbestos. They have things like that. They're crumbling. They're not maintained because there's no budget a lot it for that. And so I think if I had unlimited money, I would rework education in America. Like that's what I would do. Because that would end up benefiting every other aspect of our country. And it benefits the economy because they're going to grow up more educated. They're going to grow up more healthy. They're going to grow up and make better decisions. And that's going to go out and they'll start new businesses that we haven't even thought of. That created. So everything, new doctors, new scientists, everything that Every aspect of our lives comes from kids that we do schooling, right? So I would do that. I would take my unlimited funds and I would, that's the greatest impact I think I could have is taking schools across, start at a state and just go state by state by state, county by county by county and make education better. Because someone's going to say, Nicole, you can't just throw money at it. And I agree with that. So I would definitely, in order to entice quality people into the education field who are going to care about kids, who are going to care about education, who are going to care about and have the expertise and know-how and knowledge and drive to push the things I want to see in education happen. You got to pay people. Um, you just do. You're like, oh, you don't have to pay me. Yeah, you, you kind of do. And so these are the things I would do if I had a limited funds. The way things are structured, it's requ- everything is re- to re- improve anything requires money. You know, you touched on it, but what structurally, like, what would be the first, like, infrastructure change you'd make? With school boards, I would, so structurally, you have, like, a superintendent and you have a school board. And sometimes those two don't work well. Those two entities don't work well together. In many places, uh, for school boards, you run for that. Like, it's a political office position. You run for that because you vote for that. I would like to at least change that so that you actually have a, a school board where teachers are actually a part of the school board or former teachers are part of the school board so that they have some knowledge of how a school actually works. You know what I'm saying? Versus being, I'm a parent of a student and so I want to run for the school board, but I have no idea how schools actually work. I just have my idea of how school works but from a student standpoint when I went to school 30 years ago. I would like to change that. I would also like to change 
in many places they have like Common Core, they have this big overarching system of, of testing that is, <laughs> oh Lord, I'm never going to get hired as a teacher again. But this idea of testing and holding teachers accountable for like academic growth, which is a very complex thing, but it's not a singular if this then that um, type of logic. It's not. Kids are very complex. And so is learning. And so trying to apply that to trying to gauge that with a standardized test is like trying to measure it's, it's apples and oranges. They're actually two different things. And so I definitely would change the structure of that. I do understand that some schools need, again, this idea that schools need a grade or a score, that comes from the inequality in funding. This school is a bad school. This school is a good school. And if you look at those, uh, in many cases, it's right around a socioeconomic line. And so, <laughs> there, and, and there's all, I mean, centralized tests are biased against people of color and women anyway. So there, I would get rid of that. <laughs> I would be like, that's it. Finland did it. Finland don't give standardized tests. So, and, and it, their kids are bright, happy. And I would look at Finland as a model and kind of go from there. I would limit how much homework kids have. I would limit how much testing is required because ultimately, like I said before, learning is a very dynamic and complex thing per person. It is very, it's, it's almost, like I said, criminal to try to water that down to a, a if them or multiple choice answer. We spend most of our time as adults, we were talking about this earlier, being in the grind and messing up and all that other stuff, you know, and then mm -hmm. and then you have all these things banking on one day and all that test mm -hmm. really means. And this is just my lay opinion is how well you were able to regurgitate the information that day. And you could have had yeah. a bad day. You could, you know, the kids, kids are like you say, kids are complex and there's no telling what's going on in people's homes. And, yeah. and you have to, and you add that on top of all this pressure. And it's weird that we're putting all these uh, soapbox time uh, that it's weird to me that we're putting all this pressure on the children on whether the teachers are doing a good job or not. And, and and honestly, I had kids come on exam day. I mean, on exam day, it's usually exam week. They, on that particular day, they didn't eat breakfast. They're exhausted because their baby brother was up all night crying. They are hungry. And these tests are like two and three hours long. And so it's kind of, it's hard for adults to go sit for like an SAT or an LSAT or whatever for that particular time limit and stay focused. And we are like functioning adults. I taught high school, six, I taught high school, taught middle school. And so you're asking my six to 12 kids, because they're still kids, to do that. And they can't have, and in some places they can't have water because kids are taking water bottles in with answers. And so now they can't have water. They can't get up they, and stretch except for every like hour. It's, it's very problematic. If I had violence in my home, if I just even if I had a great home and just that night I had a nightmare, so I'm groggy the next morning, I'm not on my P's and Q's. I'm not going to do well today. I have seen teachers who've been reprimanded, who lost their licenses, who ha all because of their test scores. And I just think that's, that's crazy. You have taken my career and my livelihood based on what kids did this one day. Uh, I would change all that if I had unlimited funds. I would take every, uh, there'd be no testing.
we have a model like very similar to Finland. Question number two. What's the best decision you ever made? My, the best decision I ever made was adopting my son. They are from Ethiopia. Um, and so the best decision I ever made was flying to Ethiopia to pick up my kids and bring them to America. That was the best decision that I ever made in my life. What was that process like? It was chaotic for us. We spent three years like going through doing the home study and doing all the workshops and the background checks and those things, trying to get a domestic adoption done. So we were looking to adopt a kid that was in the U.S. initially. And we did have a son placed with us. He was like a week old. And we were all elated. It was all worth it. And then his mother, his birth mother, decided that she wanted him back after we'd had him like a month and a half. It varies by state, but in the state of New Mexico, um, the birth mother has a year to, you know, invoke her birthright. And so she was able to take him back. That absolutely devastated us. And we decided that we were um, not going to go do another adoption domestically because we just couldn't go through that again. Um, becoming attached to a child, thinking that this child is now yours, and having that retracted. We had friends who had adopted internationally. We contacted their agency that was in Boston, and they did all the paperwork between you know the U.S. and Ethiopia based on the information we had provided. Since we had already done a home study, we had already done the classes and stuff, they went a little faster for us. This with the international adoption. So the paperwork part was fine because our agency in Boston handled a lot of that stuff. When we got over to Ethiopia, there was the corresponding person in Ethiopia who took us to all the places that we had to go do the Ethiopian paperwork. And then they took us to the orphanage and said, here's your kids. And they were with us that afternoon on at the hotel. Wow. Now, flying to Ethiopia was a challenge because I had just been released from the hospital from having uh, blood clots in my lungs. And my doctor was like, you just got out of the hospital a week ago. You're not going anywhere. And I, let alone internationally, you know, no. Because I was on blood thinners. And I was like, I am leaving to get my children. If I don't get my children, I don't get my money back and I don't get my kids. So I'm going. And so we flew out from Albuquerque to Chicago, from Chicago to London, where they had just had the London uh, bombing a week before. So this is in 06. And then we flew from London to Amman, Jordan, and from Amman, Jordan to Ethiopia. And it was my first time ever being to Africa, any country in Africa. And it was amazing. That is freaking awesome. Flew over as a couple, and we flew home as a party of five. <laughs> and it was interesting because my older two boys spoke Amharic, and they did not speak English. While we were in Ethiopia, we had a guide. His name was Job, and we had another travel guide. His name was Caleb. And they drove us around uh, to sites, and they took us to places to eat. And they helped, he helped translate for the boys, like, these are your parents now. These are people you're going to go live with. Don't curse at them, you know, because our boys had been, you know, they were three and four, the older two. 
had already formed their own personalities at that point, and they had been living on the street about a month before they were placed in an orphanage. So they had some rough edges, which <laughs> they had so much personality, and they still do, even though they're now both 19, want to be 20 in March. So they're they're grown men now, um, but they they are men, and I love them tremendously. So, but easy peasy, the best decision of my life. Question number three. What's the most surprising thing you've done in the last five years? Surprising? Yes. I got married <laughs> at a rent fair. That's what we talked about before, but that is probably the most surprising thing I've done. <laughs> Who gets married at a Renaissance festival? Especially if you're black. It was just very... <laughs> Surprising. I will I will go ahead and say you have the best answer for question number three that I've had so far. <laughs> like seriously. That is something that if you would have told me like five years ago I was gonna do, I'd be like, No, I'm not. <laughs> Please tell me absurd. <laughs> yes. Had you been to a rent fair at that point? I had. Like I I go every year. But I don't always dress up for them. I usually just go get my scotch eggs, watch the thing, you know, let my kids run around. I knew what it was. And as a teacher, I had taken kids there because they have like kids day, student day. And so I would, I've taken my kids to the Renaissance Festival because I taught British English in the high school. And so I'm like, you got to go to a Red Fair to get the experience of some of this stuff. They, we were reading Shakespeare. They didn't understand. So I'm like, let's go to a Red Fair so you can see costuming and Shouting and medieval stuff. And so we, I have been, but again, it's, a, it's like an amusement park. You don't think you're going to get married to Six Flags either, right? You just, it's like <laughs> five years ago, I was like, yeah, no, go to River, sure. Get married in one, uh-uh. That was just getting married again was just, that just so outside the stratosphere of anything I was thinking at that time. So yeah. <laughs> Question number four. What makes a date complete for you? Okay, so I haven't dated in like four years. But I'm like, <laughs> I think what makes a date complete for me is the, after the meal, the movie, the walk, whatever the actual main event is, what makes the a date complete is the parting when there's a promise to either call or follow up or let's do this again or this you know this didn't work good night you know whatever the case may be but the feeling of completeness comes with the end of the night or the end of the day or the end of the event and the desire to either that was well worth my time or this is something i want to explore like the end event that it's this is something i want to continue or this is something that was worth it today or good today or tonight or that was nice that makes a date complete for me with the promise of that I didn't waste my five hours four hours three hours or whatever it was that that's a disruptive date I'm like oh that was not worth my time that was god <laughs> so so most dates and actually that happened with my now husband um when we were dating the feeling of whatever it was we were doing whether it was going to the Ren fair or whether it was attending a book uh, conference, that at the end of it, I felt like I enjoyed my time and it was time well spent. 
that made it complete for me. What would make a uh, a husband wife date night complete for you? Dude, good food. Like seriously, good food and good atmosphere. And like so, for us when we do our date nights, it's usually ends up at, a, at an Italian restaurant. Don't ask me why. We have a favorite one that we go to, which ironically is by the Renaissance Festival. <laughs> so, it's like, yeah, so it's a great place. It has a great atmosphere. But if we're both like not on our phones, we're actually fully engaged in each other. And it's really great food and really great food. And we're really into each other and the atmosphere is great. That's a, that's a good date night for us. But if we're crabby or if one of us is like on our phones all the time or distracted, that's not a good date night because the whole point is for us to be in the now with each other because the daily life of being married, you know, you don't get that uh, all the time. And so that for me would be, so we usually go out for movies or we go out, well, I can't go to movies anymore, but back in the before time, we would go out for movies, we would go out and bowl. We would go bowling. We would go to get a nice dinner. Uh, sometimes we would double date with other friends of ours. And that would also, other couples of ours, it should also be, again, another good double date night because now we're not just in, being present with each other, but with our friends too. And it's usually a good time of reminiscing or, you know, just being comfortable around people that you trust and you love and, and, and enjoying, again, that atmosphere. And for me, it's always comes down to food. The food is crappy. It'll ruin things. <laughs> it's going to be crappy. <laughs> Reminisce on the love we have. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah! So, oh, she thought that was funny, too. That's brilliant. Question number five. Name a moment in childhood that stuck with you. I remember in seventh grade, this moment stuck with me. My teacher, Mrs. Harris, I went to, I, I, I was bused to an affluent middle school in, for seventh grade. And I didn't know anyone because it was in a neighborhood far, far from mine uh, where I lived. And so I was new. I was new and I didn't know anyone and I had come from a neighborhood middle school where everybody knew not only me, but my family. So they knew my dad's people. They knew my mom's people. They knew, I mean, we're Southern. So everybody knew everybody. And then I get bused to this affluent school on the other side of town where very few people looked like me. And the education was a lot more, was a lot harder than what I was used to. I remember having those first few days of being completely uh, othered and lonely, in some degree scared because the faces didn't look like mine either. And there was a black reading teacher that was my reading teacher. And they were getting ready to do something for Black History Month. And she was doing like miniature mini plays in her room. And I had been in class for like two days. And she asked me to be Rosa Parks, to play the part of Rosa Parks. And I thought that was crazy because I'm like, no, A, number one, not big on acting. Two, complete introvert. Three, no. Um, but she held me up in class and she said, I really think you can do this. 
you know, and I'm like, it's not just because I'm like one of three black girls in this class. Oh, she's like, no, because I think you can do this. And so we uh, gave my part. I walked through the part with her. She's like, we can practice after class or after school if you want. And she was just, just there after school because I had to bust, but she was willing to let me come up during lunch and practice with her. That moment stuck with me. I felt seen that someone saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And not only did she just see it, she she nurtured it the rest of that year and, and kind of made that year livable for me. And every time I saw her out later, I would always tell her what she did for me. That Not just that year. Because it... I mean, Rosa Parks was stubborn. She wasn't getting up. She wasn't moving. And that was kind of that moment that kind of stayed with me, even as a teacher, to look for those students and, and who don't have their shine yet, don't know where it is, but you know there's a there's a light inside of them and helping them find it and spark it and nurture it. And so I try to give that back. Uh, as a teacher myself, because a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Harris, did it for me. And that moment was one of those most memorable moments of my of my childhood. That is amazing. You ever run across her still? Um, no, because I don't live in that city anymore. But um, and I'm almost sure she passed away. She stayed with me and and I when I did decide to become a teacher and if I needed to draw back on like because they would ask you in graduate school and what why do you teach <laughs> you know you know what you know what kind of teacher you want to be and I always went to her I tell people all the time that my mom is fantastic she's a great uh, mentor for me but uh, but additionally I had really wonderful teachers that made all the difference between me you know, eating out of a garbage can um, and me now. You know, one paycheck for living out of a garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> but it, as, as far as a person goes, it was teachers. You know, they would help expand on the seeds that my mom would drop. Because my mom only knew so much. But teachers that took an interest in me as a person, uh-huh. not just a number in their class, they really made a difference in who I became as an adult. Miss Harris, Miss Turd, you know, Mr. Noah, just, you know, Miss Williams, who the only reason why I graduated high school is because she made sure I didn't select algebra. Like, <laughs> they don't get enough credit, they don't get enough pay, but it definitely helped shape me for who I am as a person, like as an Nicole. Speaking of Nicole as an adult, let's actually talk about why you're here. (laughs) Tell me about A Theft Most Foul. So A Theft Most Foul is is my attempt at writing a fantasy heist story. So in the Kingdom of Avis, um, this is the second novella in the Kingdom of Avis mystery series. The first one is Kill Three Birds. This is my story where Prentice, your hawk investigator, um, is sent to the University of Solanday, where she went to college, to investigate the theft of a high 
religious artifact, which is called the Five Feathered Crown. And, and the legend has it that the goddess selected five feathers from the five clans, uh, bird clans that would oversee and rule the kingdom of Avis and turn those feathers into a gold crown. And it says that whoever touches the crown will die. And so it's on display at the Museum of the Goddess at the university. So the university has this museum with lots of goddess artifacts. And one of Prentice's former teachers, who's a rook, everyone's a bird in this, in case you haven't read the uh, Kill Three Birds. In the Kingdom of Avis, everyone's um, a part of a bird clan. And so rooks are almost always instructors or teachers, right? And so her rook, rook runner, he runs the museum, but he's also an expert in goddess artifacts. And so people come to him and say, hey, I found this in my backyard. Is it a goddess artifact or is it a fake? Basically, he knows, right? He spent his whole life in this. So anyway, this item is stolen. And in the process of stealing it, one person was placed in a coma and another, they had guards. One guard is in a coma and another guard has, has like serious injuries. And so it's a high profile theft. This is one of the most sacred items in all of Avis, and it's gone. Who has to figure out what happened? Prentice. And Prentice is like only a fifth year investigator. She hasn't been doing it a very long, but she's not alone this time. Last time in Kilty Birds, she was on her own up in gold uh, investigating things. But here in Solon Day, they've sent in a condor. Condors are kind of like the muscle for hawks. Hawks are the investigative arm of the order, so they investigate all the supernatural um, crimes and mysteries that happen in the kingdom, and they go out on assignments. So this time she's assigned a partner, <laughs> which makes things a little bit different for her. A, because it's Galen, who's a condor, and A, because she and Galen have a history. And so a theft most foul kind of forces Prentice to go back home in a sense. She goes back to her university days. She got to go back to the university she attended and kind of revisit. It's a place of memories. It's a place of heartbreak. And it's also a place of a major theft. And so she has to figure out what's going on. I love heist movies, too. That's all, That sounds awesome. <laughs> Today I wrote a blog about my inspirations for a theft most foul. And most of it comes from like, reading Dan Brown's Angel and Demons, which is one of my favorite books. Because it revolves like a, you know religious artifacts and art and people who want to use those items for whatever nefarious reasons. And so it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a lot of participants and, and Galen running around trying to figure out who has stolen it. You know, basically it's a whodunit. But I, I like the fact that like Kilty Birds is about like a serial murder. Um, but this one is not. It's completely different. That's not to say there aren't like, you know, some things that happen. It won't spoil too much. But. <laughs> the staff is the primary like sin, right, in this one. So it gave me a chance to expand upon that world, which I love. I love the Kingdom of Avis uh, world. It's so much fun to play in. It allowed me to in, to introduce new birds, like night jars and uh, guinea fowl vultures. Um, so it's, it's just a cool story. Um, it comes out January 20th. Question number six. What do you wish everyone had? Healthcare. Wow. (laughs) 
unless you want to elaborate, that's that's that sounds like a mic drop. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I wish everyone had free health care. Please remind my loyal listeners where they can find you, where they can get at that most foul. You can find it uh, at that most foul is available at Amazon. You can go to my website, which is NicoleGibbonsKurtz.net. You can find me on Twitter at Nicole T. Kurtz and on Facebook at Nicole T. Kurtz as well. So thank you for having me today. It was so much fun. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Another deep and insightful interview getting to know Nicole a little bit better. Man, that was cool. It was nice to get a true professional look at where our educational needs help. That was very interesting. So what did you learn? Leave me a message and let me know on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget, remember, that's what I said, don't forget and remember to check out her new novella, A Theft Most Foul, wherever you normally buy books. Also, log into your podcast app and leave a five-star rating and review. I have no idea why it helps the rankings, but I also don't know why putting gas in my car makes it go either. Next week... I get to talk to another fellow podcaster whose curiosity about random subjects is eerily familiar. We get to meet the host of the Associated Goods podcast, Dan Felton. So until next time, see it, hear it, speak it, live.